So this isn't going to be published, right? It might. No. <clears throat> is this what people tune in for? <laughs> How is your uh, apartment, Len? It's a it's a mixed bag. I I was actually trying to figure out where to podcast from. That wouldn't be terrible because we're kind of right on Seventeenth Street. So at any point, someone could have a honking fit, and that would be obnoxious. Is uh, your SO still asleep? Yes. I told him I was doing this this morning, but he might forget and start yelling at me. <laughs> How have the cats been? Um, they've been good. The one was actually afraid to go up the stairs because we have this trinity and it's like a super steep spirally staircase and he wouldn't go up. And right now we've got the litter box and like the spare bathroom. So I would carry him up the stairs and then he would just run to the litter box because <laughs> he was too scared to come up himself. But today he finally is braving it. And have they been um, daring to go out the front door? Not yet. They they do scheme to like go in the basement, and the basement floor is not suitable for paws because it's filthy still. Mm. Um, but yeah, they, they scheme and plot to get in the basement. We had to lock our cats in the basement last night because... So every morning at like 5 or 6 a.m. they start pawing at the door. Not that the door's closed. They just find something loud to paw on to wake us up for breakfast. Now, last night, for some reason, one of our cats decided to do that at 1 a.m., so I had to lock in the basement. That's what the litter box is. Yeah, that's a good plan. I overfeed my cats, so they do not annoy me with food requests. We have an automatic feeder. We still haven't um, fixed it yet. The one cat will like reach up and take all the food out, um, the kitten, and then by the time the food tries to dispense, there's no food left for the older cat. She's a thief. Just survival of the fittest. <laughs> exactly. Jervon, how you doing? I'm fine. Woke up this morning, I fixed my bike. Really? So, yeah. Did you have a spare tube? I have, yeah. I bought a bunch of tubes a while back. I do not have a bicycle pump, though. So I have to go buy one after this. I think we have a pump. We don't have an electric one, though. I'm just going to buy a regular hand pump. I'm Justin Campbell, and this is Len Smith. Hello, I'm Ignu on Twitter. It's I-G-N-U. And uh, Jervon Dari. Hey, how's it going? And I'm at Jervon on Twitter. That's J-E-A-R-V-O-N. The one and only Jervon. My goal in life is to get more popular than Ignau University, which is huge in India, because whenever I do a vanity search for myself, I'll type Ignu into Google, and it always says, did you mean Ignau? And I have to click the link for Ignu. Is that I-G-N-O-W? I-G-N-O-U. Oh. Interesting. So, news. I don't have any news news, but I do have, since we talked last week about TDD is Dead, there have been some response articles from both uh, Gary Bernhardt and Uncle Bob. Did you guys read either of those? I read Gary Bernhardt's, and I thought it was pretty perfect. Yeah, I really liked his. Uncle Bob's was um, really, like, missed the whole point. Or... Maybe I missed his point, but he spent three quarters of the article talking about evangelicalism, how do you spell it, pronounce it, of TDD and how that's not really what we're talking about and kind of like picking apart DHH's argument about like the blind faith of TDD and then like really briefly went into like why TDD is, is valuable. Whereas Gary Bernhardt just went straight technical and said, here's how it works and here's what I do and this is why it's important. He explained the flow in a really interesting way, uh, you know, saying how it, it 
not having super fast tests would just be a huge barrier to the way he works. Yeah, yeah, I really enjoyed that. There also was uh, Ernie Miller was on the ThoughtBot podcast over the weekend, and uh, he gave some some pretty good feedback to this whole argument as well. I saw that. I haven't listened to it yet the, on my phone. Jervon, did you read other of those articles? I read the first part of the Uncle Bob one. Um, the When Gary Bernhardt's got released, it wouldn't load, so it's on my to, to read list because <laughs> so many people are hitting it. Did you have uh, any opinion on the Uncle Bob one? It was very Uncle Bob esque. <laughs> uh, you know, he, to bring home his point, he usually has to make a grand, not gesture, but this like big deal about it. Kind of, I got past that, but then I didn't finish it. <laughs> That's why I like Gary Bernhardt's the best because he didn't. He kind of had a great takedown of how DHH's rhetoric was just over the top and then just described his flow. And I just thought it was a pretty perfect takedown. Yeah, I agree. Do you guys do that sort of fast feedback in your work? I've never had a test suite fast enough because everyone makes the compromises to adapt for, for Rails. So like every I time have not... you run a test, it starts a server and some other thing and... Even even if we did do use something like Spork or Zeus... I've always had things making expensive calls and have not had for a long time the, the under a second feedback from my tests. Yeah, in Gary's article, he went into like, I think he prefers like 300 milliseconds or something. And then I think a second is like a good round number that I've heard thrown around a lot too. And I think somebody in Ruby Rogues once said that um, seven seconds is the time that if it takes longer than seven seconds, You've already like switched tabs to Twitter or Reddit or something, and you're looking at something else, waiting for them to run. Yeah, maybe maybe I have ADD, but if it's yeah longer than three, I'm I've forgot. Like I'll, <laughs> I'll see red and I'll be wondering if I meant for the test to pass or not. <laughs> so, is it um, that you will look at Twitter, or like your mind just loses its focus? Yeah, you just like get you get bored and impatient. Like like seven seconds is a long time to be staring at a black screen waiting for a result to pop out. Yeah, that is true. I just I don't think I've felt myself do that, but I don't know. Do you, Len? Do you use uh, Keystroke and Vim to to do that, or do you just have some kind of process watching file changes like Guard? Uh, I'll do both. If I have a project where Watch is already set up, I'll run Watch. Otherwise, I'll find just something in, in Vim to run my tests in a separate Tmux pane. I've been doing that like a little bit. I have um, like some make commands and some other commands that open like a split Tmux window with the test results. Um, but I haven't been consistent because I work in like Ruby and then I've been doing a lot of like bash programming um, and occasionally like JavaScript tests. Um, but I haven't like found a keystroke command combination whatever that will run the right thing every time i like in gary's article he, he mentioned like he sets it up so that he tells it what test to run and then every time he runs it from then on it runs the same test and then that's kind of like really a low low barrier to changing that is like oh i'm, I'm writing another test now so now i can switch which one i'm running or i'm working in a different file have you tried tmuxinator and like sending a command from one i haven't tried tmuxinator i don't think i tried um vimux vmux are they? I think they're similar, right? Uh, probably. 
So I was, I was wrong. It was not Tumuxinator. It's the splitting and manages your pain. So it is Vmux and Turbux. Oh. Yeah, I, I have uh, F2 bound to bind F1 to another Turbux command. So when I know I want to run a command over and over again, I will hit F2 and then just hype the command. And then I can rerun that command with F1. So I'll type like F2, but looks like R spec and the spec file. And then I can just hit F1 over and over and over, over again. Kind of similar to uh, Gary's keystroke, sounds like. Yeah, he bounded to enter, which it never dawned on me that I could bind. I realized my enter is not doing anything in normal mode, and it's a, a prime key. It's like a key I wouldn't even think about. I have like absurd combinations of like leader F3 for things, and my enter key is just sitting there doing nothing. You have a lot of interesting key mappings. I like whenever I get on your computer and I press an arrow key, I, I do a git commit or something. <laughs> now you just traverse the, the git history. It's actually pretty cool, but then I'm... Yeah, I'm I'm a I still use the arrow keys in Vim, I have a confession. I'm sorry for my sins. But they're just right there and they're so they're so logical. They point in the direction you want to go. <laughs> they're useful. Yeah. And my biggest problem with switching to like HJKL is that I'll be in Vim and then if I go to another program, like a GUI program, then I end up, you know, like hitting those keys trying to trying to move. And then you started installing Vimu and other programs, and that's just a mess. So what else went on last week? My uh, my news sources, I just pulled up the latest issue of Ruby, Ruby Weekly. It's also like a JavaScript weekly. Guard is looking for new maintainers. Might be interested in that, actually. There was... <clears throat> DHH putting more tests... Um, sorry, more posts about slow tests and other things. I think it was actually a response to DHH's post. Um, sorry, Gary Bernhardt's post. Okay. Are you, are you guys familiar with uh, variants in Rails? What is that? It's the extension on your view file. So like, it allows you to do the .js, .coffee, or .html, .haml. Or is this the one where you can do like .iphone, .erb or something? Yeah, I learned that yesterday. That's pretty insane. I guess my initial reaction is you should probably use responsive design for that, but I understand that there are probably more use cases than just, oh, I want it to look different on this phone. It's probably like so, a different feature set, or even, I've heard that you can even do like different things, not just like iPhone. So two things. One is, I think depending on the size of your site, you should use responsive design, but sometimes the views might be so different that it, it's okay to do that. I guess so, like Harvest is a good example. Like Harvest website is really has a lot of features and you can like different sections you can go to, but the mobile site is just time tracking and nothing else. Yeah. So that's, that's a good example. The other thing is they were saying like so recently we had an app where like they were scoping admins and stuff by IP address because it was a college. And you can put the IP address in the file name. And then you kind of have an admin system that way. That doesn't seem uh, janky at all. <laughs> I mean, it's like a first pass solution or like a quick. Like if it's just an internal website, I think it'll be fine. I really hate when there are separate views for mobile websites just because there will so often be missing functionality. Like I'll post something really stupid to Facebook and then realize that I don't have the button to delete the post and have to run to a computer. Yeah, and then. 
as a developer, you have to keep all these different views synced with each other. If you make a change somewhere, you need to make sure it's changing all the views too. Yeah, that's another thing. I guess it would be better if you were like, I guess you could use parsers with this. Like maybe you could have a, a web view, like the default view that uses maybe four partials and a mobile view that uses maybe two of them. Maybe you like don't put the footer and something else in. That'd be, I guess, an interesting, like a, a way to avoid using booleans in the view to like selectively turn different sections of the site on and off for mobile. I don't know. There's a lot of stuff in Rails that I don't use. Do you guys use concerns at all? I have not. And my understanding is they're just, it, it does the like base included stuff for you, right? I think so. I think that's like really just formalizing a pattern that already existed. I, I just, I've seen it happen where people use that as a like, oh, I'm going to extract this, but really I'm just making a module to include and putting all methods in a different location, even though they're all being mixed into the same location, the same object. You know what else happened this week? What? Lynn and I got new card backs for Hearthstone. Oh, that makes me bored, and I was part of it. <laughs> bored? Yeah. What are card backs? So in, in Hearthstone, um, you can like earn, you can buy card backs to get new cards, and you can earn cards, but just like a playing card, all the cards have a back. So one way they give out rewards for things is to give you different card backs to show off. So if you happen to have two other friends in real life and can be on the same subnet and play three games against them, you can get a card back, which is called the Fireside Gathering card back, and it glows like a fire. Cool. It's pretty sweet. It's not. <laughs> I was really excited about it. Len, like, slightly less so. And Dave, the person we uh, recruited to help us, he didn't know what we were doing. And at the end of it, he was like, that's it? We just get a card back? You don't even get to see them because your cards are played face up. You can see them on the right. And I, I guess they're also like in the uh, my collection view when you're actually like organizing your cards. Are you guys going to any conferences this year? I want to. I find it really hard when you're self-employed to go to conferences because you... Every time I do the math, I'll calculate how much travel is. Then I'll calculate how much the hotel is, then how much the conference is. And if I'm still interested at that point, I'll then subtract all the hours I would otherwise bill, and then I decide not to go. Dude, just, just do it. Just for a once, at least one time a year. Just go wild. I used to go to a lot of conferences when I had a, a job job, and they'd, I'd get paid time off to go. Yeah, I mean, I, I had the same dilemma. The not billing hours costs a lot of money, and... And then the conference costs money on top of that. I, th I think that a lot of consultants might try to speak at conferences. And I feel like going to conferences might overall affect your rate you can bill long term. Like, I, I think that like staying in touch with like what is going on. I, I guess you could do that online too. But I feel like as I go to a conference, I meet a lot of people, make a lot of connections. And I, I, I learn a lot of things. Or I at least get a perspective of like what is current in whatever conference I'm going to. So I, I, I kind of justify it like I'm not making this much per hour per day. I'm making on average this much per year. And in that average, I'm also going to like a few conferences. Could I make, you know, a little bit more not go to any conferences? Yeah, but I, I, I don't know if that would really be the best for me long term. I think you're right. Although Ruby conferences seem a lot harder to speak at. 
I used to speak at a lot of .NET conferences where the bar was a lot lower for entry. <laughs> .NET. You just submit uh, a proposal and you, you speak, basically. You know, you said that before, and I, I, I keep forgetting. Like When I look at Lynn, I never think of, like, oh, he's a, he's a Windows developer. I was a Windows developer for a long, long time. Where'd you work? Everywhere. I mean, I never had a job that lasted more than two years, but lots of small shops. There are a lot of like small .NET shops and outside of the enterprise. We just never interact with those people for the most part because they don't go to conferences. Or they don't go to our conferences, at least. Do you miss anything about a .NET world? No. You don't miss types? I do not miss types. Interesting. I thought I would. And I think that everyone thinks that when they've only been introduced to to static languages. But I did become a, a TDD advocate uh, during my .NET days. Yeah, I was going to say, like, we don't, you say we don't interact with those people, but I feel like there are conferences that focus on testing and software quality. Like, I went to SCNA, Software and Craftsmanship in North America, last year in Chicago, and that was a really great conference. And there was a ton of C Sharp and Java and Scala, all kinds of different developers there. But yeah, back to your point about missing types. I, I, I've never been paid to write in a type language. But whenever I play with a type language, I always feel much safer. Like, I don't, I'm not like running, I, I do run tests, I do practice TDD, but most of the time it's like, will this even compile? And it, most of the times when it compiles, it usually works. Maybe that's like a whole nother level of like software quality and keeping things small. I also find that messing with a type language, um, I start thinking about Ruby in a way where I try to limit the amount, the number of types a method can return. The most obvious one being, like, uh, if this returns a thing or nil, maybe it should only return a thing. But uh, a, another example would be, like, something that returns a collection probably should return an empty collection if it's not returning anything instead of nil. I find that doing that as much as possible makes it much easier to work higher in the stack and rely on those components. So do you think that when... So it seems like people are to the extreme of, like, you know, you don't need types. And then type people are like, you need types. Do you think it's people not trying, like from the Ruby perspective, people not trying out to think in that way and they're just kind of missing out something that they'd greatly benefit from if they tried it? I don't think Ruby's missing anything. So um, not missing, just so you say that type using a type language kind of changes your perspective and how you program, right? Yeah. So, well, I think... I think it could limit your perspective. I think you get a false sense of security. And I feel like doing true TDD where you need to write every single uh, line preceded by a failing test. Like you're not allowed to write a line of production code until you have a test that's read and that line you write makes that test turn to green. I think if you stick with that practice, you end up writing a much better compiler. <laughs> and the compiler is just like superfluous at that point. I mean, you'd still do TDD in type language. It would just be, hmm. I guess one is no, more. I used to. I mean, you wouldn't you wouldn't write a test that a thing is a certain type necessarily. But um, yeah, if you if you find yourself writing tests and you you write a system top to bottom TDD style, you I think you realize that your your compiler is just superfluous. Like your your tests are more important. I agree, but I I, I would maybe you have a a project that already has like maybe you've TDD it and maybe somebody else is changing something. The types do more, make it more resilient to error, right? I don't, I don't, I don't think that's true. I, don't, I mean, I don't, in my non-type languages, 
think I run into a problem that often where I'm passing the wrong type into something. I think duck typing is generally fine. And to that so, point, things become really hairy when you when you do want a method that takes just oh anything that responds to method X or Y in in .NET or Java, you need to like make a specific interface and then add that interface, you know, interface with a capital I to those classes that that will respond to that type. Nice. And it, it just becomes this this nasty mess of trying to figure out what things belong to what interface. And I it's def- a lot of overhead. <laughs> I definitely agree. But I, I feel like in code bases I've seen that on, on teams of teams that we're on of like six to eight people where we try to practice TDD, like every time we coerce something to an array or a hash or every time we, we check if something is nil, that is an instance where we've, we failed with the return type of that, that method. Well, hashes in Ruby are also kind of terrible. Just in the fact that we can have indifferent access or or strings or symbols, I think I think that's the thing that that trips me up the most. It's just a hash, and I'm trying to look for a symbol when it's getting a, a string. Have any of you ever played with an optionally typed language? I believe um, it might be Rust, but I know I know Dart is optionally typed. Go might be optionally typed as well. I forget. No, I think Go's strongly typed. Okay. I think there's maybe a difference too between um, optionally typed in type inference, where you don't need to declare the type on every single method or function, but it needs to be able to figure it out from one end to the other. And you know we don't optimize for this in Ruby, but the other thing that types can buy you is the compiler can optimize the code for the types being passed around if it knows the types. So I would I would not want to write a large business logic web app in one of these other languages, but I do think for small services that you need to be rock solid, I think, I think, I feel like types make me feel better about the implementation. Maybe that's just a feeling of... But, so I don't think it's about safety, or I guess you can classify this as safety, or TDD, I I just feel like it's just better programming in a way that, like, you kind of know, like, I guess you're being a good citizen and just, like, not returning a random nail somewhere. Maybe you should return like a null object instead. Well, think about it like this: like if you're in Ruby and you s- save a file in Vim and you have like syntax checking on, and it runs Ruby through the syntax checker, it might pop up on a line and say, "Hey, you forgot a comma here on this hash, or you didn't end this block, or something." But with a type language like Go, when you save and run the syntax checker, it'll say, "Hey, this whole thing doesn't compile." Like this, this takes one type. This this accepts another type, and and you mismatch them somewhere, and it won't even it won't even compile or run without everything lining up. I don't know. I, I plan on playing a lot more with um, type languages this summer. This month, I am trying to learn as much as possible about Python. Uh, oh, is there a surprise coming? Might might be giving a talk. We'll see if I uh, check it out or not. I had this idea to give a talk at a Ruby group, RB, every month about a language that is not Ruby. And I felt like Python was a nice easing into it. And then I'm going to go off the deep end and talk about Haskell. Well, so what have you learned about Python so far? The explicit self is interesting. It's uh, white space important. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of keywords in the language. Um, like instead of sending a method to an array to iterate over it or map over it, there's actually like keywords built into the language that do those things. So you have more, I guess. I guess it'd be considered like generics, like generic collections. I don't know. It's, it's, it's interesting. I don't. I don't have a use case where I would use it over Ruby. I know that it's a lot bigger in the science and math communities. I'm not in either of those. 
Haskell's fun, though. I really just want to get Python done so I can move on to more interesting languages. It's probably horrible of me to say. Um, so, question for you guys. So, like, I forget, I found out that the so class is a keyword in JavaScript, but it's not used for every, anything because it, it was never implemented. So, like, how would you go about, or what do you think the best way is to clean up a language if you were the maintainer? Or like, it's not. How, it's it, it's there, but not used. Yeah. So it was never implemented. Like the word, like you can't. You don't say like class person, right? You just you like you do constructors and say like new person, right. or you just say like function capital P for person. Well, JavaScript's a special animal because we'll never be able to upgrade because people will be using IE 7 for the next decade. I really think languages that compile to JavaScript are like in the future. Like we, are, we all use CoffeeScript, I think. And CoffeeScript is a great language, but it's still, it's still JavaScript T. I mean, it, it adds like classes and some other niceties. But I, I really like the idea of using like ClojureScript or some other wildly different language that compiles to JavaScript. I find that really interesting. So instead of just like converting, like CoffeeScript seems to kind of just convert code to JavaScript, whereas these others maybe use JavaScript as a almost like an assembly language. That's crazy though that we're never like like JavaScript would always be JavaScript, and then so I like the 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 other languages that compile to JavaScript, but it just seems wild that you know ten years from now JavaScript is still going to be crazy. Len likes JavaScript. I like CoffeeScript better though. Me too. We have such a convoluted stack now. It's so ridiculous. Like I was trying to work with a, a junior developer and it's just telling them what they need to know. It's like, okay, first you need to learn HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. But we don't actually write in those languages because they're all terrible. So you need to learn uh, SAS, CoffeeScript, and Haml. Yeah. But I... you need to know the underlying languages first to make the, uh, the superset make sense. I forget her name and the name of her blog, but there was, I'll put it in the show notes of, um, it's mostly satirical posts, but one was like, be, be a web developer in, in one easy step. And then it was like, learn everything you can about the following. And it was like 50 bullet points. <laughs> it was like, you know, Ruby, JavaScript, uh, CSS, HTML, SAS, HAML. And then it was like, Git, Bash, SQL, Postgres, MySQL, <laughs> HTTP. Have you guys uh, done any closure script? Nope. No, but I am giving a talk on it. Uh, <laughs> okay, then. In June. Where at? Great. The Philly JavaScript made it. So I guess you better, better get on that. <laughs> oh, yeah. I have like three weeks. But I was actually looking into how to play with it, or like how to use it at work. And there, I found two gems that allow you to integrate closure script into the asset pipeline. I used one of them once, and compiling the assets took 280 seconds. Did you have that problem, too? I've only read the readme so far. I have not tried to integrate it into any apps. But was this like a Rails 3 app? or I think it might have been Rails 3. Okay. It is intriguing to me to be able to use Clojure and ClojureScript, both on the server and the client. Like I don't, I don't think you should like share code necessarily between them, but it's kind of nice from a development standpoint that you're not switching language context. I mean, I guess you need to know that you're on... I haven't done much of either to really say, but I guess you need to know that you're on a JVM versus a JavaScript virtual machine, but as far as like syntax and, and the core of the language, it seem, seems like a nice nice win. It definitely hurts writing a Rails app and then 
implementing a large chunk of the front end in this whole other language with different frameworks. I think like Rails has a pile of packaging, and, or maybe I just don't understand the all the packaging systems. But like, what's the best way to like pulling required JS? So like, and have, like Bower and like Grunt. Or have you asset, have or, you used Rails assets? I have not. Uh, it is rails-assets.org. So you put you actually put it as a source in your gem file. So you source rubygems.org and then you source rails-assets.org. And then you can add gems that are prefixed with like rails-assets-bootstrap or dash angular. And then it makes gems out of Bower dependencies. I think it's Bower. Yeah, it's Bower. So when the Bower package gets updated, the Rails assets gem will automatically get updated? Yeah, and I think it matches the version from the Bower repository. That's pretty great because the gem JavaScript packaging was like the worst idea that's ever happened. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're still doing it, but it's it's just, I guess, a thin wrapper that the service provides. Right, well, as long as it's automatically updated because with the gems, the, like the gem maintainer would just miss a month and you want to upgrade your JavaScript library and you'd have to just go through the pain of ripping out the gem and, and vendoring it normally. And that kind of like subverts the whole advantage of having it as a gem in the first place. Yeah, I've gone through that and also like been sitting on Rails issues where we're like, hey, can you update this for us so we're not maintaining our own fork? But yeah, Rails, rails-assets.org is really great for that. And then, wow. you can, then you can just require the thing in your... Um, CSS or asset pipeline, whatever. And this just automatically includes any gem. So any Bower package, I could just say Rails dash assets slash Bower package, and it will exist. Yep, Rails dash assets dash, and then Bootstrap or whatever, and then it, it pulls it in. I assume it needs to be in some kind of format to logically like find the index or whatever the the start point of the package is. I'd have to look at like a package.json and figure it out, or Bower.json. But yeah, it seems to just we we use it on uh, the project we're working on at work, and it seems to be just work flawlessly. Dropping the knowledge. Nice. So should we do what we learned? Or? I was thinking about that, and I was like, man, I didn't learn anything. <laughs> that that'd be lie, though. Do you have something, Javon? Um, I was trying to. So I had the same problem of like, all right, so what could I say that I learned technically? And then I was like. I kind of really don't want to explain anything this morning. So, but uh, I walked to work yesterday, and I also walked home. And uh, walking, I found like walking really clears your head, and allows you to like I don't know what it does really, or what the science is, but like just being outside for a little bit, and not even like so I ride my bike, but that's a lot of hustling. So like I have to like move around cars or like try not to get hit. But walking is just like calm, strolling. So walk more and you'll become a better programmer. There was just a study that came out by Stanford saying that uh, walking improves creativity. I think I saw that headline. I didn't get to it. All right. You know, see you guys. I'm going to walk around for four hours. I'll be back. I can't fix this problem. (laughs) I'm going to walk home and play video games. I think about, uh, you know, exercising a lot. I never actually do it, but I think about it a lot. Len. Yes. Do you have anything you want to? I don't. Don't think I. I did learn anything this week. The only thing that I've done is uh, kind of improve my calendar flow. So I've started 
adding my Pomodoros to my my calendar. And I've also just added like as a new uh, Pomodoro hack, trying to like listen to like a new artist and stick with them for the whole Pomodoro. And I'll actually add in my Pomodoro message the artist I was listening to. Oh, that's cool. So it's just another cool like history view. Like I could see what I was working on and who I was listening to throughout the week. Nice. I, uh, I've, I made a thing called uh, Dot Music that uh, saves whatever artist I'm listening to to my to a Dot Music file on a project because I've been curious like what I've been listening to when I'm working on a project. It's, it doesn't have timestamps or anything like uh, yours would have, but I don't know. I find that interesting. Do you find the Pomodoros help you, you know, get back on track? I think they can. I think I think ideally I set a goal for my 25 minutes and. It becomes like a mini little game to just sit down and focus, don't get up for any reason, and just try to do the thing I claimed I was going to do in those 25 minutes. Nice. So I have I have two things I learned. Uh, one, in Vim, um, I wanted to review a bunch of files. And I didn't realize this, but you can actually open Vim with multiple files and then use the next command and actually iterate through all of them. Uh, so you do like Vim and then pass it, you know, ABC. And it will open with A, and then if you try to quit, it'll say, hey, you have two more files left. And then you do uh, next, colon, N-E-X-T, and it will show you the next file. So, can I add to that? Sure. So, yeah, I don't think you use tabs in Vim, but I use tabs. And I think it's, if you use dash P, it'll open all the files and tabs for you. So, Vim dash P and then the file names? Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, the other thing I was going to say was, so Ruby 2.0 has the keyword arguments. So in the initializer, you can define like a hash syntax of, you say create user, right? And you give it a, you say name colon nil. And so then name becomes a local variable in that method. And it defaults to nil. And you had to always give it a... A default argument. You couldn't just say like I require this. So it it cleaned up a lot of like guard statements and and um, people usually like passing options into a hash. But then you have to like manually guard against things. Ruby two point one added the ability to you can just omit nil or omit whatever your default is and it will require it. So you do it looks weird, but you do like name colon and then just end your parentheses. What somebody showed me this week was in Ruby 2.0, you can just do name colon name. And because the name wasn't passed in, it will give you a local like uh, variable or method not found because it wasn't passed in. But it's kind of a hack, but it does require you to pass it in. The only downside is if you have a method or an attribute reader in your object that has the same name of name, then it won't work because it will just default to nil. Awesome. Yeah. Shout out to Mike Nicolaitis. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'll see Len later. Talk to you online, Justin. Yeah, guys. Have a great day. Thanks. Cool. Bye. See you guys. Bye. See you.